listening to your accent, Graham, and I'm definitely thinking Southern California. Do I have that right? California, I wish, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> Southern Australia. I, I lived in Australia for 10 years, but I'm English, Northern England, with a terrible accent. People tell me you haven't got rid of it. I thought I had, but it's mixed up because I, I lived in Italy. I lived in Australia 10 years, lived in China 5 years, Hong Kong 2 years, and now America 10 years, so... It adds up to about 105, but... (laughs) Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And, of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spira.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we're not talking about that today. Instead, today... We're going to be talking with Graham Stewart, the founder of Fiber 52. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Hey, thanks, Adam. Good to be here, and thanks for inviting me on the pod. Yeah, it's our pleasure. You know, we're going to be talking a little bit about textile manufacturing today, and I'm particularly excited about this because textiles played such a big role in, like, the industrial revolution and the economy of countries like Bangladesh and so on. And you've been working in, you know, textiles and dyeing textiles your whole career, is my understanding, Graham. Is that right? That's correct, Adam. Yeah, started at an early age. We were the largest commission dyers in Europe, and um, we dyed just about everything you could think of, and I studied my degrees in coloration. I've been in it all my life. So cotton, when you grow cotton, it doesn't just come in like orange, like the shirt I'm wearing. It actually has to be turned into that color at some point. You know, people are working on that, but I think it's going to be a while. (laughs) So we're stuck with uh, other ways of coloring cotton. To your point, there's a lot of water used in growing cotton which gets a lot of publicity, but there's a lot of water used in coloration in cotton and processing cotton, Um, and that's part of what we're about, is conserving the environment, but also a big part of that is making sure we use less water in processing. Yeah, yeah. So so tell us about Fiber 52 and kind of what you guys are up to. Fiber 52 began because I was doing a lot of my own dyeing, and I noticed that there was a lot of damage being done to the cellulose in dyeing because... They use traditional dyeing, which is still 95% of what goes on in the world, and we're going to change that all being well. Uses what heavy alkali, caustic soda, in fact. We take that out. We use bioproducts to do the job. You know, some people say, well, you know, you can't get the cotton clean. We do. Cotton's bleached before it's dyed, and that's to get the trash, as it's nicely called in the trade, out of the cotton, which is vegetable matter, lignins and other celluloses which colour the cotton. We get that out. But we get it out by using lower temperatures, much less water, and much less time. In our literature, we say we use up to 50% less time, 50% up to, I have to use those words advisedly, 50% reduction in water, 50% reduction in energy, and up to 50% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Now let's talk about this for a second. So if, if I'm a textile manufacturer and I'm going to be producing a range of shirts or something like that, I, I get the raw material, I get the cotton, and I have to apply today, I have to apply all of these caustic chemicals to it in order to prepare it to be dyed. That's a big problem, right? Because that produces a lot of waste. You have to use all this water. And by the way, I don't know what these caustic materials are. I'm sure you can tell me what they are, but they got to be bad for you. Right, They are if you get them on you, and I've done that many a time, but they're just bad for the cotton because what they're doing is degrading the cellulose so your shirt isn't as strong as it should be or as durable as it should be. What's happening is the the nice side effect of doing it this way in a more gentle manner, more natural manner, 
is that your cotton is much, much stronger and much more durable in every way. So that, that was quite a big breakthrough in developing Fiber 52. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, so you can uh, essentially have the benefit of having the cotton clean from all the junk, as you called it, not using the caustic chemicals, and it actually comes out better. Yeah, and the tough bit was to harness all these, oh, a few byproducts, put it that way. The big, the big breakthrough for me was after a couple of years, I had managed to find a very cheap, Bioproduct. By the way, this process doesn't cost more than normal. In fact, it costs less because of all the water, all the energy and so on that we save. You know, that's a big saving. But the breakthrough was one bioproduct catalyzes the whole process. And so it's a much shorter time at lower temperatures. And the big water saving is instead what normally happens in bleaching or getting rid of the trash and all that kind of stuff, getting the cotton white, is that you have to drop the bath Right, So you get rid of the water, then you refill it with soap to get the cotton clean again, ready for dyeing, so it's prepared for dye. And that might happen twice. But if you think of a 1,000 kilograms of fabric or fibre you know, and you drop a bath, that's 10,000 litres of water down the drain, just for a few T-shirts. I mean, that's yeah. a 1,000 kilos. Uh, so, yes, presently it's very wasteful, and that's where we make a big impact with Fibre 52. We don't drop the bath. We go straight from prepare for dye into dye and saving time again, but also saving energy because you're not having to reheat the bath, but a big saving in, uh, in water usage. One of the things that I find so fascinating about doing this podcast is getting a chance to talk with people who do all of these things that it's almost like you never knew existed. Like many people wouldn't have even thought about this process before. How did you get involved with this, Graham? Again, dye houses. Even if I tried in my career to get away from dying, I, I, I don't do it. I'm not good at that. It's with me. And trial and error. I mean, a lot of error. And basically, I'm not a scientist you know, I know enough because I, I do have a degree in coloration, but basically I knew there was a better way and uh, I could see all the damage being done because in processing, specifically in cotton, it tends to go on for a long time. And then you've got other mixtures. You know, we, we all, mostly we all wear polycottons as well because cotton is often mixed with polyester, sometimes for price and sometimes because cotton is being degraded, it gets mixed with polyester to make it durable. With Fiber 52, you don't need to do that. I'm hoping in the future we can say, why do you need polyester? Because cotton is a natural fibre. It's the second largest fibre in the world in usage. Polyester still be number one, but we're not using petrochemicals. It is grown. It's wonderful. We're just trying to make the processing better. Yeah, because the sustainability of all the petrochemical products is really challenging, right? All the polyester that's out there, it has a really long... Does it ever break down? It does, but it, we're long gone by the time it does. To be fair, there are a lot of initiatives, a few here in the U.S., where they're making polyester compostable, but it's not easy. It's not just compostable, right? You've got to have various conditions and so on, and... The problem with polyester as well is the microfiber issue in that it's going into the sea, it's choking the fish, it's making all sorts of problems. It's in our water supplies. People will say, yeah, but cotton's the same. We're finding that it's not. I mean, yes, cotton does fibrillate and there are small, but it's natural. And again, it does compost. So 
don't worry too much about that. I want to pull the conversation back for a second. So you've got this really new approach, which has a lot of benefits to textile manufacturers. But I imagine that textile manufacturers, they've been doing things the old way for a long time. So what is it like talking with them about this new approach and getting them to think differently about these things? That's a big question. Good question, Adam, because welcome to my life. I'm in a dye house every week, and usually the dye says this can't work up front. You know, you don't have enough alkali. Your temperatures are too low. You're not getting all the natural products out of the cotton, and therefore we can't dye it. Okay, I'm paying for the trial. Let me go ahead. And so quite often I'll have five, 600 pounds in a machine. We'll go blind on it. But basically what I do is ask them to watch and record. You know, a lot of dye houses have got very good controls where you can record the whole process. And in fact, just up the road here from where I am in North Carolina... Um, I'm working with a fabulous yarn dye house, which is called package dyeing, which is like dyeing a brick. And those guys have been very open. They, in fact, donated the cotton to me and let me work in their machines. And we go from their normal process. And and just this last week, I've done a very light blue because most people say it's going to be brown. You're not going to get the light colors. So I did a very light blue, repeated it a few times. And then we compare side by side. So when I dye fiber 52, I dye the conventional method right next to it. Uh, So we can measure the two very carefully. Right now, fiber 52 is taking about four hours and 15 minutes, four hours and 30 minutes, depending on what happens. The traditional process is taking nine hours. So we're about... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so in my world, we would call it a proof of concept. Yes. You know, you're going in and you're essentially doing the work. Do they pay you for that or you're doing that on your own dime? Do it on, on my dime or the company's dime. And, you know, we continue to do that. It's very important. And we even have staff in other parts of the world now. We have a full-time person in Bangladesh, for instance. He covers India and Pakistan as well, where... There's big textile, particularly big cotton textile sure. industry and processing industry in those countries. And, of course, in, in those regions, there's a lot of cotton growing as well. What we try to do is to get people to embrace this. And, yes, there's got to be a lot of trials. So usually, you know, if we go to a company to get this process accepted, usually it's a two- to four-month process before it is because you've got to get over the scepticism to begin with. That goes from the management to the shop floor. But the guys in the shop floor, I've got to tell you, they go, wow, this is great because we're not using the heavy alkali. Yeah. I don't have to worry about that. And also, it's much simpler than normal dyeing. You know, you don't have to do anything special. You're carrying the same bucket across the floor. It's just got a bioproduct in it instead of a heavy chemical. So, so you've got this new approach for doing the cleaning up of the cotton to make the dyeing easier, but do people get worried about the long-term effect of using your method? Like, what's going to happen to that shirt in six months or a year or something like that? Is that part of the skepticism at all? Not at all. Never had that okay. one bit. In fact, this week, because I did a, a webinar which took a, a wide textile audience, a lady rang me like, or she got a hold of me on LinkedIn like 10 minutes afterwards, managing director of a beautiful company that make cloths for cheese and food and cotton. They produce cotton for beauty, you know, for putting product on your face or whatever you want to do. I know you do a lot of that. This is why you're very familiar with this market. That's right, as you can see. And so um, guess what? She's saying this could be a cleaner process for food, you know. Yeah. Natural process. Everything's reacted. You don't have any residues. 
and it's it's just natural. So, but yeah. it was quite interesting for me, and we are getting a lot of interest from what we call the non-woven products, the non-woven industry, which is anything from carpets to interiors of automotives, to interiors of planes. It's also used very much in personal hygiene, and that's a big interest for many of these producers. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I know there's a lot of consumer sentiment around sustainability, but also just about all of the poisons. You mentioned the microfiber issue before. I know there's been a lot of talk about that. And, you know, we've had, you know, on the podcast, fabric makers and rug makers and people like that. And you don't think about it, but you bring this kind of stuff in your house, you know, and what kind of pollutants are you essentially bringing in? So I could see that being important for people. So cotton is used in food production uh, or food wrapping, I guess. Is that? Yeah, food wrapping, fruit, food preservation. And so, again, very interesting for me to have someone from the food industry say, can we get together? We're really keen to take this further. And, of course, there'll be a lot of testing. Again, there has to be. It was a nice surprise. So we were talking a little bit earlier about how you go to market with this, and you're kind of licensing this technology to the the manufacturers. Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges with doing that and the IP issues that you have worldwide today. Yeah, we spend a lot of time and money with our lawyers on this because, one, you can transfer this technology around the world very, very quickly. So it can be interpreted, let's say, very, very quickly. And, and so we've got to keep an eye on the usage. One is we're going to control the products that are going in. In fact, we may even buy them and then send them to distributors so we know where they're going. Hmm. But we do look for our partners very carefully. Um, we want to work with partners who we know are going to be real partners. We can trust them. They can trust us. We're even looking at the value chain in that we're starting right there at the beginning of the value chain, we're looking at blockchain, uh, we're looking at DNA, we're looking at all sorts of things where we can cheaply monitor the whole supply chain, which gives also visibility into the supply chain, which is really important. So that's part of our work in making sure we know that Fiber 52 is Fiber 52 and it hasn't been interpreted by using some heavy chemicals and so on. Right, right, right. There's that old joke that uh, you know, somebody can come up with Fiber 53. Yeah. Uh, right. Hey, speaking about Fiber 52, you never told me why the company is called Fiber 52. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, one, one thing is it was very hard to call anything cotton because, you know, all the trademarks have been taken. But Fiber 52 is the number of chromosomes in the most common cotton in the world. And it adds up to 52. So basically it's cotton. Gotcha. So it's, it's like the genetic maker of, of cotton is fiber 52. You've got it. Yeah. Gotcha. It does kind of remind me of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Kurt Vonnegut book, Cat's Cradle, where they invent Ice 9, you know, <laughs> which essentially comes to global ruin. I'm not saying fiber 52 will do that, but it's sort of interesting. So, so okay, so it's the genetic markers that make up the cotton is how you got the name. It's really hard to name a company. I've named a couple of companies, and, and my experience has been no matter what name you choose, people don't like it. Yeah. It's never like, oh, that's great. When you named the company, was it hard to get everybody to agree? on it oh absolutely and we and we, we also had a an agency involved and even though they came up with tremendous names even they were caught out by the fact that they'd already been legally taken or people would complain about them and yeah none of us agreed on the name to be honest but we do like fiber 52 and generally people are interested because oh what is it like you said 
and then you know some glaze over when you tell them but it's certainly uh, a name that invites questions put it that way yeah yeah well we we named our company spiro from the latin word spirare which means to breathe because we wanted to breathe new life into this terrible field of crm as it's called right but most people think that we're just greek american people and anytime we go to like a trade show or something like that, you, you'd be really surprised by the number of people whose first name is actually Spiro. Uh, and they just come right up to us, and it's really always a good time. As a matter of fact, our mailman right now is called Spiro as well. So It's a nice name, for sure. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about where you are with the business. What do you see coming up on the horizon? You know, what's sort of the next step for you guys? Well, we've gone through the emerging stage and we're into, as I said, we've been held back because of, you know, legal issues, but we're now in the commercialization stage very much. And so trials, as we speak, every day trials around the world, and some of them are not small trials. You know, I'll often do six, seven hundred pounds at a time, which can be two, three thousand yards of fabric which makes a few shirts. But we, um, yeah, I mean, we're dealing with people who process as much as £2 million of cotton a week. And so there are mills around, and they are interested because imagine if you're doing £2 million a week and you can save even 30% of your time, that's a lot of dollars. And so that's why we're getting a lot of interest from from the biggest brands and manufacturers in the world. So so for you, do you go to like Levi's and you talk at that level with people or do you have to speak to all of their subcontractors and so on or do you just talk to everybody? Well, we started off talking to the subcontractors, but then we realized that we had to talk to the brands. And so we do talk to those brands and, you know, the big ones like you mentioned around the world, we're speaking to many, many of them right now. And that's great because the brands are all under pressure to be more ecological. Uh, mm-hmm. and the ESG pressure is incredible. And also, you know, what we found is we move very quickly in Italy. One, because I've got a lot of friends there and I know the processes there, I know the brands there. And with my friends, we managed to move quickly because there's legislation coming down the track real fast. And so many manufacturers, many brands want to make sure that they're in a good place before that legislation hits. And so you do see wherever legislation is, those are the countries that are adopting quickest. Or if they... And the legislation is around sustainability or what, what kind of legislation? Yeah, around sustainability. And, you know, there's been organizations like Greenpeace, the United Nations in particular, where they've got a 2030 strategy, where, which is excellent, where they're looking at being much more sustainable by 2030. And so those sustainable practices just have to happen. And so Fibre 52 is in a very, very good position for that. And in fact, for many companies, we can write your sustainability statement because by using Fibre 52, you are doing good for the planet and the people. So I'm interested in your perspective on this. What I'm hearing is that in Europe and in the U.S., sustainability, ESG is sort of a big thing. Do you see, see the same thing in Asia, or is that more of a Western kind of thing at this point? No, it's the same It's the same in Asia, I believe, in that you look out east, and there are countries in Asia that are very much involved, but also big processing areas, and therefore they're dealing with brands that have got a big interest in ESG and and Mm -hmm. sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so they have to come up to standard. Yeah, you're right. Because even though a lot of the manufacturing is done in Bangladesh, the buyer of all those products has certain rules about how everything uh, has to work there for them. Absolutely. Those rules are, um, are, are very onerous 
to say the least. The big brands all have a lot of rules to meet their standards, and that has to be done. So one, one last question here, Graham. So if we're talking with manufacturing executives who are thinking about launching new products, which is essentially what you're doing here, what is your advice, having kind of gone through this for a while now? What do, what do you think is the most important thing people should be thinking about? Well, I think you've got to know your market very well. And, you know, I mentioned legislation coming down the track. It's also how, the, to me, the consumer is going to be affected by this process, for instance. You go into a store and look at apparel, there's very little information on it. And I think that, back to your question, that you have to be in tune with what the consumer believes, wishes, and what the pressures are there, and, of course, the education. So that's been, for me, the biggest driver in that uh, I'm really trying to get brands and manufacturers to let the consumer know what Fibre 52 does. And I think that is reflected in other industries and other manufacturing as well. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. It's such an important point because I feel like as entrepreneurs, people become very excited about whatever the idea is, right? But it it needs to come from, like, how is it going to be bought? What is is the legislation changing that's going to drive demand for it? Is the consumer sentiment changing that's going to drive demand for it? And if you can have a great idea that connects with those two things... Boy, you've really got something. Yeah, and that is my belief, and I, I hope that answers your question because I, I do believe that's the situation. Yeah, no, no, that's that's perfect. Well, hey, Graham, I, I really appreciate your joining us on the podcast. It's been a great episode. It's been super fascinating to learn about dyeing and cotton and all the manufacturing around that. Who knew that it was going to be so interesting? So I really, really appreciate your coming on the show. And thanks for inviting him. Thanks for all the great questions. Yeah, no worries. So for our listeners, as a reminder, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at spiro.ai backslash podcast. Try saying that three times fast. And uh, what do you think, Graham? If people like the show, should they give us a good rating or a thumbs up or whatever they, they do on the Internet these days? All of those things, Adam, yeah. And uh, also, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, take a look at our website. Just tell everybody what your website is, just to be super clear, Graham. It's real easy. It's fiber52.com. Even I can remember it. We're getting more and more information out there because, again, we see that as being a very important part of Fiber 52 in that not just for consumers, but to have information there for manufacturers as well who might want to get into a more ecological process. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks to, for everybody for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you on the next episode.